0: You're listening to the Rick Soto Podcast. For more information about Pastor Rick Soto and the Ranch Church, go to ranchchurch.com. First Thessalonians chapter one, I'm actually going to look at one verse. This is very rare for my preaching style and so we're gonna read this and pray. So first Thessalonians chapter one, verse one, the name of this message is called Stop Lying. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. And so, Father, we come now to the preaching and teaching of your word, asking that you would release the fullness and the anointing of the Holy Spirit, asking God that we would know you and that you would come by a true sovereign grace upon our lives and change us. God, I'm asking right now that you would actually lift us, Lord Jesus, and fill us to the full, that we would have true knowledge in knowing you. God, I know that every person here has some sort of need, but you are sufficient to meet that need. And so come now, God, and speak to our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name, and all God's people in our church will say, Amen. Okay, so rather bold statement related to this church in Thessalonica, which is in Greece, and related to what you need to hear today by what the Word of God and the Spirit of God is saying to you. And it is this introductory phrase, the title of the message, and that is Stop Lying. And I'm going to ask you to receive that. Like, stop lying, stop lying about God. And stop lying about yourself and stop lying about others. Like some of our foundational problems in our society is that we have lies that we believe about God and about, and about others and even about ourselves. And so stop lying and enter into truth. The gospel is true and there is truth and you can be free through that truth Christ has said. So we have to stop lying about God and stop telling lies about God. So in some broad categories, people will ultimately say they won't use this quiet language, but they're going to say is God is unknowable or that I can't work with God. See, look at his, look what's going on with them and, and he's unworkable. And some will even, they, again, they won't quite say it this way, but they'll say that he's worthless. So God is to some people unknowable, unworkable or worthless. That's a lie. There's all kinds of cultural lies. And sadly, there's even some churches that will participate in those kinds of laws. God is not unknowable, He can be known. The truth is that you can draw near to God, you can draw near to the heart of God. Some people will say He's unworkable. I mean, what's the point of prayer anyway if He's not going to answer that prayer? the truth is, is that God has his king and he has a kingdom and he will answer prayer and he'll listen to the cries of our hearts. And as we draw near, that we will obtain all the grace and sufficiency that we need. In fact, you can't work very well oftentimes with the people that you work with professionally, but God, by his grace, the blood of Christ will work in and through your humanity to bring glory to himself. He's absolutely workable. He absolutely is knowable. And then it's really sad. Some people will say he's worthless. No, God is able. Like, what are you facing today? What are you facing tomorrow? He is able. And in this lifetime, when our earthly bodies expire, we're going to heaven. Who's going with me, right? We're going to heaven. That's how how able he is. And in the story that you heard from Dr. Richard Danson, and there's this prayer, this mom who hears medically right there. You know what? This guy is gone. Your son is gone. Everything medically we can tell you has been done. The nurse is taking off the machines. There's nothing. I'm so sorry. And she defiantly, that's the right word, puts her hands on her hips and says, my God is not done. Amen. Yes. And so Jesus heal my son. And I'll shout that out. And then, of course, he's being transparent and telling you, you know what, I didn't necessarily believe it. I just wanted to go home, as we would all would. But God had a different plan. And then this man's healed, but he still doesn't know Christ. He's still in his stubbornness and his sinfulness. And then there's that word, he will get saved, and he does. Listen, God works all of that out to his glory. But we need to stop telling lies about God. God is glorious. God is beautiful. God is wonderful. And he's here. And he is the mightiest of might to save. We need to stop telling lies about ourselves. There's all kinds of different lies. People will say, "You know, no one gets me." Stop telling lies. God gets you, and people can understand you and accept you. And Christians themselves will actually accept you. We'll say lies about ourselves. We'll say, "I'm on my own in this lifetime." No, you're not. You're not alone. You're not alone if you're part of the ranch church. You're not alone if you're around any kind of gospel people. And if you're in the most isolated, isolated place on planet earth, God is there. You're not alone. You've never been alone in your despair. You've never been alone in your sadness. You've never been alone in the darkness of those dark caves that you find yourself in. You're not alone. Never. That's who God is. And some people will actually say about themselves, well, I don't care anymore. Yes, you do. That's just a thought of bitterness. That's a thought of anger. It's a thought of rejecting God and rejecting yourself. You do care, that's why you're upset and that's why you say it. And so stop lying about that. It takes greater courage and greater spiritual moral courage to say, no, I actually do care, but I'm hurting about what I care about. Then lie to yourself and deny it. Stop lying. Stop lying about others, calling them losers. I know you don't maybe say that or maybe you do. If you say that out loud, you don't have many friends. Do <laughs> you think that, stop lying about others that they're so weak especially if they're in church and Christians. Don't you know better? Don't you know more about the word? Don't you have full of the Holy Spirit? Oh, knock it off and stop lying. Don't you understand that Christ followers are claiming that we have no self-righteousness of our own. There's no self-sufficiency. We're not raising our hands and saying, we have it all together. It's the opposite of that confession. I'm broken. I'm weak. I'm needy. I must be saved. I must be born again. I must actually repent of my sin. I must repent of my selfishness, my pride. I must confess that I lack faith at moments or at very serious times. And I I must raise my hands and say, I need God. And people say all of these kinds of things. And they're lying. You know, I find it so fascinating that one of our issues as we get into our text here in a moment with the introduction of these three people of Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy, that one of the problems in our humanity is that we do not easily welcome our limitations. And so I've seasoned enough in life to actually welcome my limitations as a blessing of freedom to realize that God has actually placed limitations around my earthly tent and that they are actually places by which I can invite him more and more in my life so that there's greater expressions of the supernatural in my life. So I've come to actually welcome those limitations. Things that in my more youthful days, I I rejected with pride and bravado and self-centeredness. Now I realize that's God creating these earthly limitations so that he can work in profound ways. And so in our humanity, we do not embrace our limitations very well. And we're really weird in the animal kingdom. In fact, I I had a number of animals. I was gonna illustrate this with you, uh, but I'll just give you one and that's the lion. And so you're used to understanding that a lion, you know, lion heart, very bold, very brave, and they are, and they're incredible creatures, and they can destroy pretty much anything on planet earth very quickly. But what you might not understand about the lion is the lion knows its limitation. The limitation is that the lion is not a marathon runner. So that's actually why the lion lays in, lies in wait. You've probably heard that. You've seen the shows on your own cable or YouTube or whatever. The lion lays in wait. Yes, church? Okay, well, if the lion can kill anything, why doesn't it just walk into the animal kingdom and say, "You day, you my lunch"? Right? Why doesn't it just brazenly and boldly walk around and go, "Oh, you can run for as long as you want, but I'm gonna take you down and you're gonna be my dessert"? Like, why, why does it lie down? because it can't run more than a mile. Now, most people can't. They think, oh, run a mile, that's, that's too much. But in the wilderness, even humans and animals, like running like that's no problem. The problem the lion knows, if it gets about a mile into running and chasing a prey, its actual circulatory system turns against it and weakens it, and it will actually begin to shake and become very vulnerable. So, the lion knows that I have to, I have to, like, you know, be a scaredy cat, you know, and lie and wait to catch something quickly. It knows its limitations. But humans don't, and so they struggle to call out to God. The Thessalonica church in ancient Greece was in a place of a culture of distrust. Paul had come and actually had preached the gospel to them. And so they were in a culture of distrust, and even in the church. So for example, Paul actually taught them that Jesus was gonna come back, but Paul wasn't with them very long because persecution breaks out. And so they heard this teaching that Jesus is gonna come back, and so they began to wonder, well, is Jesus gonna come back. Did you know that? Did you know that Jesus is gonna come back? Jesus is gonna come back. Did you realize that Jesus is gonna come back? OK, well, if Jesus is going to come back and settle all the scores and his kingdom is going to come, then this is what the Thessalonians said: "Why am I going to work today? How do you go to work today? He going to come back tomorrow? I don't need to go to work today. I don't need to pay my bills today. I'm just gonna do whatever I want today. So this is literally what trip them up. And it's part of why Paul is writing first and second Thessalonians and tell them, okay, here's how you can deal with this distrust related to Jesus coming back. All right, so just pause for a moment. Has Jesus come back in the next two seconds? No. Okay, get to work. Like that's what it is. Like if he has not come back in that very next moment, then get to work. And they wanted to know, well, what do I do as I'm waiting this out with my work, with my home, with my taxes, with uh, my businesses? And then lastly, that you'll find out later later in the book, and even 2 Thessalonians, that they actually get a little bit mean to the Paul, their pastor, who had actually planted their church, and they started to think, think to themselves, and then out loud, well, maybe you made it up. You know, maybe, maybe Jesus didn't actually come to you, Paul. You know, you are a Jew by the way, and this is Greece. We don't take kindly to Jews here. So maybe you just made it up. Maybe what you want us to be is just really Jews of just another stripe and color variety. Maybe Jesus didn't actually raise from the dead or all of that. And so they began this culture of distrust, which is actually part of a root system that we can understand because we have our root systems of lies. We've trained ourselves to love the shallow and the celebrity, as an American modern culture. And we've trained ourselves to communicate digitally and not in person. I mean, we have people who are actually shallow enough to write emotionally charged emails when they can talk to the person. Like, yo, brother, sister, let me help you out. Talk to the person. That's what God wants. So on a little lighter illustration, we had interns before the pandemic, and so Uh, This is in a a training session for the uh, interns, which are uh, basically around 22 years old. And so I just love these people. And so this is, you know, sort of a generational statement, but to the point in this situation. So I'm, I'm talking about communication. I'm giving some examples in church and in church life and in personal, professional life. And so I said to this wonderful young gal, I said, so in light of all these things, I want you to call these people. Now, this is them as 22-year-olds calling high school students and other 20-somethings in the community. And I said, I want you to call them. And so this is interns at that age, and they're looking at me like I'm from Mars. <laughs> and she was, she, you know, it's an interactive thing. So she was kind and gracious enough to say, say, say so pastor, can I, can I ask you a question? I'm like, yes, yes. Do, do you do you mean like, actually, like, and she got, this not embellished. She goes, do, do you want me to tap their phone number into my phone? They pick up on their phone, and then I talk to them on the phone. What did I say, church? <laughs> yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> I, I, want, I want this to not be your texting device for these reasons that I gave you I want you to call another live person who's going to pick up and I want you to talk to them personally and I want you to interact with them personally. And she looked at me and she said, "Well, that'd be weird." <laughs> I went and worked with them to understand that trust is built as we talk to one another personally. We have to have this kind of personal interactions. And so we come now to Paul and Sylvanus, to Silas mainly in other parts of the Bible and Timothy as mentioned here. And in Acts chapter 16 and 17, we have the planting of this great church. I will just give that to you by reference. You can understand that. Here's what happens. It's a fascinating story. Towards the very end of Acts chapter 15, excuse me, one of the saddest things in all of the book of Acts takes place this superstar man named Paul who had been saved. He was actually a religious terrorist and he had, he had harmed people, he had killed people. Christ comes to him and saves him. He's transformed. He spends a few decades uh, kind of getting the gospel story right and anchored in the faith and uh, he checks with the apostles. He's accepted into the churches. It's quite a journey and quite a story. And he has a big brother in the faith faith, Excuse me, named Barnabas. And because of Barnabas, whose name really, that's what that name means, Barnabas, it means son of encouragement. Barnabas, his true biblical name is Joseph, and he's a Levitical priest. And he's the one who was able to disciple and get his arms around Paul and, and show him all of these things in terms of how the Bible was working. And And so at the very end of Acts 15, Paul gets mad at Barnabas and he breaks up with them. I mean, it's a nasty fight. And they literally break their their A-team fellowship of anointing and they break that thing apart and each goes their own way. So that's why I come to Acts chapter 16 to tell you the story because they frankly don't know what to do. And they're trying to go out in ministry in Turkey and they're trying to actually go into Asia proper and nothing is working out. Have you had seasons in your life where nothing works out? That season of life of ministry where you're trying to minister and you're you know you're you're going to be full of faith and then nothing works out. And then you sort of have a little guilt and shame about maybe I should have been easier with Barnabas. I mean, or maybe it's related to that. And so so they're actually still trying to go out and do gospel ministry. They want to go one way. And every step that they're taking towards that is simply not working out the way they thought. Then towards the end of Acts chapter 16, they get a vision. They didn't pray. And at least the Bible doesn't record them doing that. Uh, This wasn't any kind of man-centered thing. They just get a vision of a guy in Greece. That's Macedonian in your Bible, or Macedon, the northern parts of Greece. The southerns you're more familiar with, that's the Spartans. So this is more towards the northern and middle part of that continent of Europe. And so they have this vision. They have this vision of a guy going like this, like, come over here. (laughs) Is that a vision? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Come over here. And they start thinking, wait, are you, are you dressed like a Macedonian? Yeah. Come over here. They go, Do you see this? You see this? Same- yeah. Come over here. And they had this vision of a man from Macedon who was constantly enthusiastically saying, you have to come over here. Y- you have to come over here. And they go, we don't want to go there. We want to go into Asia proper. You have to come over here. Well, nothing's working out. And the ministry team I was part of broke up. And frankly, I was kind of full of pride and sin about that. And it's really on me. And I don't really know what to do with that. Frankly, I want to get away from you people. I want to go up to Asia. Come over here. Like right now, come over here. Right? And so, and so, so, so Paul, it's kind of funny when you read the Bible, he literally says, so we sort of concluded that God wanted us to go over there. And so, and so they, they turn around, and they journey into Greece proper. And they come to a city called Thessalonica. And they go into a synagogue to preach the gospel. They just said, hey, we're, we're your Jewish brothers from the other part of the world. And uh, we know about Jesus being the Savior. Ever heard about Jesus being the Savior and Lord? He's resurrected on the third day, and the Holy Spirit has come. You ever heard about that? We haven't heard about that. Maybe you should tell us about that. And so a revival breaks out. And some of you might know that there's a phrase within Scripture that says, and they turn the world upside down. This is a compliment to the New Testament church. That's the Thessalonians. So they say these people have turned the world upside down. And a great revival breaks out. And then right afterwards, a great persecution works out, breaks out, excuse me. So church, here's what I want you to understand. Here's what you have to to sort of work and let the Holy Spirit marinate in you. Is that before you took one step, God already took many. Before you took that one step, God had already taken many. And you think you're on this path, on this trajectory a certain way. And you probably could justifiably say, well, if I were to look back here, I was disobedient there and I was disobedient here And you know what? I kind of blew up the ministry team here. I meant well, but you know, it's all of that. I was proud right there. I have a bad reputation now here. And none of this is kind of all worked out. And I'm actually just trying to find my way. And then God comes with a vision. It says, but you all come over here. And then you go there, and then God starts doing his new economy, which he had for Him, always from the beginning to catch. Listen, church, before you took one step, God had already taken many. He had already been at work in some powerful and meaningful ways way before you. The church here, as mentioned, to the church of the Thessalonians, and I got to put, put the gas on a little bit here, so hang on, church. To The church of the Thessalonians and God, the father, our Lord Jesus Christ to the church of the Thessalonians. Listen, the church has a function and the function is that we must gather together. Like you are not here by an accident. You are here because God has actually called you. You think you got out of bed in the morning. God got you out of bed in the morning. You think you had a desire to come to church. God put that desire in your heart to come to church. You think you had a friend who brought you to church. God was actually speaking through your friend to invite you to this place so that you can actually gather. You know what worship is in terms of music? Worship, musical worship is not singing songs to God. I realize in our immaturity, that's what we tend to think. Do I like the music? Do I like the band? Right, I've had people say, why well, doesn't that bass player like get down on his knees and start doing this? Or, you, know, you know, and, you know, and, and why does he hit the drums even harder? You know, I'm like, you want Tommy to hit the drums harder? No, oh, you don't want Tommy to hit the drums harder. And you know, it's because what we're doing is we're gathering together to minister to the king of kings, to the Lord Jesus Christ, to offer to him with our mouth, with our heart, songs and words which would minister and bless the God as the creator of the universe and to declare him in our lives as our Lord. So we gather for that purpose and we gather to celebrate, we gather to love, we gather to cry, we gather to worship, we gather to obey sacred commands. Like if you come to church and you don't in some place at a minimum through some of the teaching experience some kind of rebuke or correction in your life, then we as teaching elders are not doing our job. Your life is gonna experience correction through the text in love and in grace, but definitely in truth. And we need to receive that. Now here's what's happening. Let me run for home here. Here's what's happening. In the Ukraine, fascinating story. the Russians, they should just be wiping out the Ukraine. I mean, the numbers, of population, I really love war history and war theory. And so if you get kind of nerdy and geeky, you know, it's all about the size of the economy. It's about the tools that you have, the training of your army, all of those kind of things. The Russians should just come down and seriously wipe all of them out. It should be no problem in a man-centered kind of way. So what the Ukrainians have done that have been totally foolish by Putin and everybody else there is they've said, well, we'll fight a battle for you over here. And literally they thought that that's true. And so they've taken all of their army down into certain parts around Ukraine, expecting a very aggressive front battle. And what, what has happened is that the Ukrainians have come and cut off the supply lines. So they're now trank and infantry and armor. All of a sudden they don't have gas, they don't have fuel. All of a sudden they don't have food. They're just cutting off one supply line after another and literally starving the Russians out as they face a bitter winter. Can I tell you, that's what the devil's trying to do to you. He wants to cut your supply chains off. He wants to cut you off from the fuel sources of your life. He wants to cut you off from gathering in corporate worship. Listen, we produce videos on YouTube. That is not the same. Not at all. If I was going to be more... Uh, I suppose a showboy, if you will. I'd bring a bunch of you up here, and I'd like touch you all. Like this is what we—that's that's what church is—to grab and to touch and to feel and to be corporately gathered, hearing the word of God at one moment, and then applying that and taking it and caring for one another and repenting together and getting on our knees together and receiving prayer and giving prayer and listening to gospel mission and taking steps together and glorifying God together. That's church. Everything else outside of culture says this church is a lie. We gather together to glorify God. And this Thessalonian church, Paul, Savannah, and Timothy, these disciples an apostle and disciple, to the church of Thessalonians, to those who gather. Now listen, he says, in God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you. In Christ, in Christ means that we have actually come to this place to place our faith in Christ. In Christ means, and in God has been, we we have actually welcomed humility in our life, repentance into our life, and we have actually fallen before God. Thank you for listening to the Rick Soto Podcast. For more information about Pastor Rick Soto and the Ranch Church, go to ranchchurch.com.